Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy-Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like where did your band name come from and who's your favorite Friends character. We're asking questions like why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passions. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. So this is the other thing: is the the, the problem of utopia as something that, when experienced as on a human level, will always be broken was something that I was playing with as well, that we should not expect political transformation to bring us to actual heaven or any kind of true utopia. It will always have its its flip side, will always be dialectical, will always have its problems. Um, you'll always experience a loss with any ma- major transformation. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. Before we get started, we have just a few pieces of housekeeping. First, my colleague Matt Langston and I are working on expanding our record label and podcast network, Rock Candy Recordings. We are currently taking submissions for new podcasts to produce, and we are looking for contributors who want to create interesting, high-quality content. If you have a podcast or you are thinking about starting one and want to join our network, I'd love to hear from you. Please go to stephenbradfordlong.com and you can send me an email with your idea or show, and I can't wait to hear from you. Second, this podcast takes around 10 hours every week to schedule, record, edit, and produce. I already work a full-time job. And this show is sustainable only with your help. If you enjoy this show, if you find yourself looking forward to it every week, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. In return, you will get a second patrons-only podcast called The House of Heretics, in which Justin and I have unedited conversations about faith and sexuality and life. If you are unable to give financially, There are other ways to support this show. You can give this show five stars on iTunes. You can share it with your friends. And above all, you can keep listening and enjoying it. In this episode, I talk to Douglas Lane about his latest novel, Bash Bash Revolution, a young adult novel that explores Marxism, revolution, artificial intelligence, and the gamification of human society. We discuss utopia, mental health, the consequences of digitization and gamification on the mind and spirituality, and much more. Douglas Lane is the publisher of Zero Books, a novelist, a podcaster, and most recently a YouTuber. Lane's previous novel, After the Saucers Landed, was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award. Douglas Lane is also the host of the Zero Books podcast. His first podcast, entitled Diet Soap, ran for over five years. He 
He lives in Portland, Oregon, with his wife and two boys. And with that, I am delighted to bring you my conversation with Douglas Lane. All right, well, Douglas Lane, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for, for having me back. Longtime listeners will remember you from our conversation about Jordan Peterson and the intellectual dark web. Mm-hmm. And that was a great conversation, and I'm really, really glad to have you back. So today we're talking about your fantastic new novel called The Bash Bash Revolution. And It's just, it, there's no the on it. It's just called Bash Bash Oh, Revolution. oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. okay. That's Bash, okay. Bash, Bash doesn't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why that matters. Uh, I certainly don't know why it matters to me, but, but somehow <laughs> it's not the Bash Bash Revolution. It's just because it's, it, you know, it's a parody of... Um, in a weird way, like Bash Bash or uh, Dance Dance Revolution. Yes, yeah. And also um, uh, Super Smash Brothers uh, Melee. Right. Uh, so. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that that's what I figured. So I've been a fan of your work for about a year now. You came up on my radar early this year, and I've just been loving everything you've been doing since. So you have the Zero Books podcast, you have, or the Zero Squared podcast, and then you have the Mm -hmm. Zero Books YouTube channel. And then, of course, you're the publisher at Zero Books, and you publish all kinds of books like Kill All Normies by Angela Nagel, which is fantastic. And uh, so so I have loved a lot of what you do, but I've never read any of your writing and I was really pleasantly, you know, I had no idea what to expect going into this book, but I was really, really pleasantly surprised by how much I am enjoying it. I'm about 70% of the way through. Mm-hmm. And so how would you describe the premise of this book? Well, the premise of the book is that there's a singularity that's been developed by the uh, NSA that has predicted that mankind has a uh, is running out the clock that there's only a, a little bit of time left um, after the election of Trump. We are doomed for an apocalypse of one kind or another. And so this uh, singularity is working with a computer scientist, the one of the ones that developed the AI uh, to perfect humanity and save the world. That's that would be uh, the the big plot of the novel. Right. Um, it's also a coming of age story for the computer scientist's son, um, whose name is Matthew. And uh, who is sort of drawn into this uh, adventure, largely unwillingly. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's the plot. That's awesome. Yeah, so a, a central theme of your book is gamification and kind of the gamification of the whole world. And so what the AI in the book, Bucky, does is he gamifies all of existence. And this, of course, kind of correlates to what is already happening. And I'm fascinated by AI, and I'm fascinated by gamification in Silicon Valley, Be- especially as someone who kind of bought the, uh, who who just swallowed the Silicon Valley pill completely. You know, I bought into the cult of Silicon Valley, and I loved Elon Musk and all that bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was a huge fan of gamification. And it has helped me in a lot of ways. So for for listeners who don't know, gamification is basically bringing game elements into everyday life. And so, you know, it's it's really popular in the self-improvement world. It's really popular in Silicon Valley. It's really popular in certain job sectors. And essentially, it is breaking down the boundary between games and real life and, and using game using game methods to motivate people. And you have a pretty dark... I I do too, but you have a pretty dark view of gamification. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that some. 
Well, sure. You know, here's the interesting thing about that is that when I came up with this idea for the book, I thought of it in terms of primarily I didn't even have an AI in mind. Mm. I just thought of it in terms of what what would have what would it take for a group of gamers to be a vanguard party to start a revolution by replacing capitalist production with truly gamified production. So yeah. now we have gamification, but we have gamification in the service of capital. We have gamification to help make production for profit more efficient. Mm. And true gamification would be to replace that kind of production altogether with games. So we would work for the sake of work itself because work would be a game. It would be a delight. That's the idea. So, right. And, and um, that's the idea in the book. Um, but then I realized that to work out the logistics of a fully – well, to, 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 to work out all the logistics and think through what it would take to have an actual revolution amongst humans today would force me to write a kind of book that I didn't want to write. Mm. It, and, and so I, w I wanted a magic wand. And I thought, oh, the magic wand I'll use is this singularity, is the AI. Then I don't have to worry about all these logistics and political problems and all of that. I can put the political problem of revolution aside and the, the AI will do it for us, basically. So then it became, you know, what would it be to uh, live in this gamified world? And because I'd introduced the singularity and because it was no longer a political project of people, but was something being done to them, it took on a dystopian character. Uh, and, and, um, but my original intent was actually to try to think past capitalism, to try to imagine gamification as an, as a radical project rather as, than as a, a way to, uh, you know, like a Fordist project to increase efficiency in, in the workplace. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the, the fact that the, book is as dark or as dystopian as it is and i don't think it's particularly dark you know in a in a in the spectrum of what's dark in literature or even television today it's not dark but in in the spectrum of uh its own universe it certainly is dark so uh the fact that that happened is sort of unintentional in a way although i mean certainly when i sit sit down the beginnings of the book and actually started to write it, I knew that it would have that that character. But um, it was not my first impulse. And I think what I want to say about that is that any truly radical or revolutionary project for, for change on a structural level will be felt by some, and not only the ruling class, as a loss. Yes. That you do not make ma uh, radical, I was going to say magical, oops, <laughs> radical change happen <laughs> without without experiencing a loss of something, a feeling that of being unmoored. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's what uh, is happening. And already it happened really to Matthew before the book even began. Um, but certainly it developed more and more as the book went along, that he be felt unmoored, uh, kind of meaning like his life was becoming meaningless and like he was losing something that he didn't even know he could get at the beginning of the book, which was uh, love and a, and a conventional purpose for life. Yeah. So it, that's interesting. So you basically went into the book exploring gamification as a positive, as something that could allow us to move past, you know, the, the kind of 
late stage capitalism that we're in now ver and and what you discovered mm -hmm. was kind of a darker side of gamification and and so i guess that brings to mind this this spectrum of gamification in society that there is some good and there is some positive there there is some positive and there is some negative yeah yeah that's right that's okay. really true and and the other thing that is as by the time i start writing the book uh you know i i've been influenced for a long long time by a group of french radical artists, intellectuals that are now, for the most part, dead. Mm. <laughs> and um, the Situationist International, who was it was an organization that started in the 50s, Guy Debord was the head guru, and um, they had this theory of the spectacle. That in, right. their, their idea was that in a, a late capitalism, rather than a factory-based mode of production, where the ultimate aim was the production of physical commodities, we now live in a world that was aimed at creating images and spectacles, and and it, it was aimed at making us into consumers and making us passive. Hmm. And over the years, I've come to decide that that critique is is in some ways wrongheaded, that we still live in a material world, that the aim of commodity production and regular capital accumulation remains, and that, the, in fact, the vision of the spectacle is somewhat utopian. The idea that what we're facing is a problem on the level of representation and passivity and personal psychology and even a certain kind of ideological sociology, that all of that is somewhat utopian. So I thought, well, why don't we take up that critique but make that into our utopia? Why don't, why don't we make the spectacle actually the revolutionary aim rather yeah. than critique of the present? So that's the other thing that's going on in the mm. book is that and so it has a dystopian quality there too, because its original vision is is from the situationist who thought the spectacle was an obscenity, really. Yeah. So so it's kind of like a u dystopia. So so a dystopia <laughs> within the context of utopia, <laughs> like right, right, like right. here's this wonderful thing. Here here's this fantastic, amazing thing that has come about. You know, Bucky experiencing the singularity. You know, Bucky being the AI, and that right. by all accounts that should be a wonderful utopian thing in which it will make all our lives easier we will be locked into the, like this state of constant fun and bliss but that is in itself a kind of dystopia um mm -hmm. so here's here's something that i found myself asking as i was reading the book and this may be way above your pay grade i'm forgetting the name of the character right now but matt's girlfriend in the book sally sally thank you sally is from a religious background um right. which which by the way your stuff about speaking in tongues in that book was just absolutely hilarious because i was raised speaking in tongues oh yeah by by like a super charismatic family and so her backstory i thought was just absolutely hilarious but so you do touch some on religion. How close to, to being accurate was I with that? Not very, I would imagine. Well, you know, T, uh, TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, I feel like mm -hmm. that is more like what you were satirizing. And in terms of that, you know, if you've seen anything from TBN, like uh, like Jim Baker, the Jim Baker show, and any of the big televangelists, it's actually kind of... You captured the absurdity. You captured like the plastic, ridiculous absurdity there. And so it, it was appropriate as satire of a certain demographic of the charismatic movement. Right. <laughs> so, right. no, I thought I thought it was awesome. Uh, but I'm really interested in the consequences of gamification on on spirituality and the I, I think the most obvious example of this are all the meditation apps that are out there right now. You know, I recently downloaded the Calm app and 
uh, was, you know, exploring a lot of their apps and it and it has all the gorgeous colors and it gives me rewards and it, you know, hits all of these endorphins and self-congratulatory endorphins for presumably, a, you know, working towards enlightenment. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and so there are these kinds of contradictions within gamification i'm and so i know that we're kind of uh wandering away from the the main topics of your book but i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that um on on spirituality and gamification if you've thought any about that well i haven't thought a lot about the gamification of spirituality um i i i know that everything is being digitized and everything is an app now yeah i know that for instance you can a lot of people now are seeking psychological help uh online rather than yes uh going to someone's office and and that and that's not even like some sort of entrepreneurial startup kind of off to the side french thing but there are real clinics that have uh, taken on skype calls as a way to t reach out to their patients that you don't always show up in fact <clears throat> i have a one of my one of my family members goes to a psychiatrist. I went with him, and uh, we went into a room where there was a, t a computer screen and talked to someone who was on the other part in an another part of town. Huh. But we went to the office and then talked. That's bizarre. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. So what am I getting at with that? I think that this the the thing about the, I'm just going to bring it back to the book. The yes, thing about please. spirituality in the book is that the gamification of the world is like as we already said utopian so it is it's it's to ask about spirituality after gamification is sort of asking about what is spirituality after we go to heaven because this is the arrival of some sort of messianic vision this is the arrival of redemption yes and that's and that's how um sally sees it sally sees mm -hmm. this as like the coming of god as like the coming of christ and so she wants to talk to bucky because it's the equivalent of talking to god right yeah. yes exactly and so she's the worst kind of heretic really yes because she she's almost she's like a, some sort of i don't know i guess pagan um because she thinks that god can be uh on earth you know, in a reified form, like experienced as uh, as a creature without being broken, like we are. Yeah. I mean, Christ was God, but Christ was also a man, just mm -hmm. a man, right? Yeah. And God on Earth would be, I don't know, right? <laughs> I mean, so so like God on Earth as God, I don't know, some sort of black hole or something. But yeah, so so this is the other thing is the 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 problem of utopia as something that, when experienced as on a human level, will always be broken was something that I was playing with as well, that we should not expect political transformation to bring us to actual heaven or any kind of true utopia. It will always have its its flip side, it will always be dialectical, it will always have its problems. Um, you'll always experience a loss with any ma major transformation. But yeah, I like Sally a lot because I liked juxtaposing this political technological revolution that the computer programmers were working on against the ideas of Sally's religion, which, by the way, were a mixture of what I've learned about Jehovah's Witnesses when they've come to my door and <laughs> and also some things I read about a, a, a charismatic church that's in my neighborhood, yes. um, which, where which people actually live on. 
which charismatic uh, church, by the way. Now I've forgotten. It's it's this big structure. They people live on the compound there. Is it uh, IHOP? Is it is it International House of Prayer? No, it's it, it says Jesus is light of the world uh, of the world on the in big marquee, <laughs> and I'll I, okay. I'll have to tell you later. But okay. yeah, yeah, it's there's real place not too far from my house. Awesome. Uh, and uh, when I was researching the book, I I actually looked into what their religion really was and yeah. and read a little bit about it. But now, of course, being I'm just going to blame it on middle age. Uh, to I've forgotten everything. <laughs> no worries. So how how worried are you about? the effects of gamification in in real life. Is this something that keeps you up at night or is it something that you're kind of ambivalent about or is it something that you uh that you're optimistic about? Well, I don't think at a certain point it's it's not worthwhile to keep talking about this in terms of gamification because gamification is just one part of what's the, of the Silicon vision, right? And and the uh the thing that most people experience I think is just the digital digital uh, life or the 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 to be the the experience of being permanently online. Yeah, yeah. Um, the screenification of our life would be the way I would put it. And would um, you say that that is the the vision of Silicon Valley to to basically digitize and screenify our entire life? I don't think it's a vision because I think it's happened. Yeah, I maybe mean, un, unevenly, like not for everyone, but it's happened to me. Yeah, I mean, my me whole profession is. Um, exists through the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything I do revolves looking at a screen, revolves around <laughs> looking at a screen. And I, I have a phone, you know, I have a smartphone that I put by my bed and uh, sometimes it wakes me up with Facebook posts in the middle of the night. Sometimes I often, I almost always wake up before I even get out of bed, will check all my little apps. Yeah. Um, I When I go to sleep, I often am sleeping uh, to the sounds of a podcast or lecture when I first go to sleep, you know? Yeah. Uh, I actually have, uh, I've lost it. I need to rediscover it because, um, because it was actually convenient. But I have a headband with micro with uh, earbuds in it, like that you prefer so you can see. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what it reminds uh, me of is Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, where his wife is has he describes them as shells in her ears and is just constantly listening to the city talking to itself. Um, right. Yeah, and yes. that that's what it reminds me of. I'm like, <laughs> I am I am the you know, Ray Bradbury's prophecy come true. I've actually said recently that I want to see if I can schedule a way to take a break from all computer screens and devices for a week. It's it's sort of like giving up coffee or if you know, or drinking or something though. I mean it, I, I, yeah. I fear it. You know, I do but, too. And if we hear about an axe murderer in Portland, we'll know what happens. Right. <laughs> we'll know who it is. Right. Um, but, sorry, go on. Now that's so. So I just feel like that. You know, am I critical of all that? Yes, but that's also self criticism. And yes, uh, I I feel as though there are so many upsides to it that it's very difficult sometimes for me to see the downsides. Like it it is something I rely on for my living. You know, as a publisher and as a podcaster and YouTuber and all of that. Um, and it also has connected me with people all around the world who I never would have talked to. Like just the other week after Bolsonaro was elected in Brazil, I had someone, or right before he was elected, I had someone reach out to me through Facebook who had listened to my podcast or seen the YouTube channel, I think. And he's uh, an animator in Sao Paulo, Brazil, for a show called Oswaldo, 27-year-old guy, worried about the election of this 
truly fascist yeah. uh, candidate in Brazil. Not, I mean, makes yeah. Trump look like a, a liberal. He's in a comparison. fucking nightmare. Yeah, he is. he is a nightmare. And and so because of the internet and what I do on the internet, I was being contacted by someone in Brazil. I would never, you know, twenty years ago, that just wouldn't have happened. Even with the internet, because the internet, you know, was around 20 years ago, but it wasn't as it didn't connect as quite so thoroughly. So I don't know. It's an up. There's upsides and downsides to it. Yeah, and I'm constantly struggling with that. You know, one book that has really influenced me is The Shallows, and I forget. I'm I'm by um yeah I'm forgetting the author right now, but The Shallows basically explores the cognitive consequences of like constant notifications, the attention economy, all that on our brains and what it's doing, and it's very pessimistic, and I think in some ways too pessimistic, overly pessimistic. But I think its point is well taken. I think th- its central point that this is shaping our brains in a way that we aren't totally aware of is actually true. And but at the same time, I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it weren't for social media. You know? Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> you know that's and that's the thing is I've had some of the most extraordinary conversations and some really extraordinary connections, like with fans with with listeners with guests with other creators i mean I, i've had really enriching relationships precisely because of precisely because of the internet precisely because of the digitization of my life so it, it, do you feel like um you know like sleeping with your phone next to you or you know waking up uh, and and looking at all your apps, do you feel like that has degraded your focus or your ability to think deeply? What are you saying? I'm sorry. No, um, <laughs> I, could. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't follow that. You spoke for so long. Uh, no, I, I, I do think it has a little bit. I don't. Okay. Um, I think that uh, I'm not sure if I had such a great, you know, handle on thinking deeply and, and rigorously to start with. But, you know, I was a TV kid born in 1970. So it's not as though I didn't grow up in a saturated media environment to begin with. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it makes it more difficult to even feel like you have permission to spend a few hours concentrating on a project, uh, unless it's something that's productive. I mean, but so for an example, I don't remember the last time I actually sat down and read, say, a novel for pleasure. Now, I'm, I work in publishing, so that's part of it. But um, but I do watch TV for pleasure. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, uh, so I don't know. I I, uh, I also feel as though I read a lot on screens. Me now. too. All of my reading is on screens. All of my book reading is on my um, iPhone 8 Plus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I read um, a lot on, I have a Kindle, uh, but I don't really use that so much. I, I do have, I mean, I, ha- I do read books because I, you know, publish paper books and I get them and um, I, I have, I read a lot of nonfiction as paper books, but I, a lot of my reading is on screens. I don't know. I, I hope that I'm not losing my ability to think deeply. I, I do think there's another side to this, which is that you can think in a networked way Yes. And can make connections between things a lot faster. So, for example, if I wanted to track down a critique of Foucault, which I did the other day, mm. um, I, I read an academic article, you know, that was uh, published in a prestigious journal. Then I went from that and looked up the author of that journal 
and found uh, an interview he'd done. And then I, you know, tracked down someone he mentioned and read a part part of uh, an article that was written by that person. And it, in in a span of an hour, I had gotten I cribbed together. Uh, at least a pretty good sketch of what the critique of Foucault was around neoliberalism. Sure. Without having to go to the library and put a big stack of books on in front of me and try to track it down <laughs> that way, right? So I don't know. It, does that is that is my critique of Foucault going to be more shallow than it would have been if I had done it the other way? I'm not. I don't know if it would be. Yeah, uh, but but if you are, but on the other hand, if you want to sit down and read one book with one person's perspective on a subject like Foucault and read it, you know, you're you're going to have a different experience than you do cribbing together uh, a sort of abstract critique of, of Foucault that's been launched by say a half dozen people, right? Right. It's you're gonna you're not gonna have that particular individual voice. You're not gonna be called upon to put together a complete argument that isn't your own. Um, that has a lot of different abstract arguments in it. So yeah, I, I think that uh, we'd be wise to try to return to that old mode every once in a while. Yeah, and and get a paper book. Actually. You know, about a decade ago, I was really concerned that we were not going to read paper books anymore because of the ebook coming up. And I actually like called a bunch of librarians and things around the country. This is when I was doing a podcast, just to see if there was any movement to preserve the book as a form, mm. to pre preserve the, the paper book as a form, and to encourage kids to engage with book reading directly and exactly for the reasons that you're talking about in terms of depth of reading. And then, of course, I became myself a casualty of this thing. But, <laughs> but. You're right. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is stuff that I've been thinking about pretty consistently for like the past two years, and I just don't really have very many answers to it because I feel like my life has been, you know, going back to gamification, I feel like my life has been made much better because of bringing elements of gamification into my life, tracking my habit, tracking my my daily rites and rituals, my accomplishments, my goals, all of that, you know, all of that bullshit. And mm -hmm. it's actually really helped me. It's it, That's one of the things that helped me get out of just this horrifically debilitating depression and, mm -hmm. and mental breakdown that I had in 2014 going into 2015, where, you know, I, I was just at the end and it was it was awful. And that was one of the things that genuinely helped me get out of it. Was that when you kind of left your church to a degree in 2014? Yes. Yeah, that was when everything. Yeah, that was when my faith. That was when my religion really started to deconstruct. And, you know, it had already been kind of destroyed, you know, destructing what's the ver what's the uh deconstructed thank De you <laughs> deconstructing thank, you. thank yeah. you yeah exactly that's when it had already been doing that for some time but what what actually happened was i met my partner my now partner and that just shattered everything that shatter because that was such a hammer blow to my traditional faith, which I had already walked away from. But it's almost like that framework, those structures were still deep inside of me psychologically. Was that when you came out at, at, at that point or had you already I'd, come out? I had already I had already been out for several years. But, you know, those tapes, you know, believing that you are fundamentally broken, believing that you're fundamentally unlovable by God, that you have to be straight. Those tapes uh. are, are very deep. 
deep, you know, and I went through the ex-gay world, uh, come from a very conservative family, went through ex-gay therapy as a teenager. So, you know, that goes very deep. And then I emerged from that depression, a much happier person, but with a religion that had basically been completely destroyed. And, and, you know, everything after that has been the rebuilding process of it, of of finding something new, of of building something more rational, more reasonable and more symbolic versus something uh, literal. And so to be a a self-avowed heretic um, and to to fully embrace heresy. (laughs) The, The Episcopal Church isn't bad. I love it, you know, and I, I actually currently teach, yo- I'm also a yoga teacher, that's one of the other things that I do in life. Oh. Uh, I currently teach at an Episcopal church, and I'm really involved at the Episcopal church. They're, they're very welcoming, and they have a, a doctrine that does not tell gay people that they're broken in any yes. way that is different from all the other people who are broken, because the, the whole Christian vision is that we're broken. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, and that God loves us despite that. Yeah. Well, you know, you can you can see it in two different ways. You know, there's there's the Martin Luther sense in which you know Martin Luther says that we are shit, and the grace of God is the snow that covers us. <laughs> that is that is Martin Luther's view. But then there's also kind of the more mystical tradition, which sees us as in fact primarily whole and primarily good uh, because we're made in the image of God. And so it really depends on which tradition you're in. I'm, I'm in the Zizekian God is broken to tradition. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good tradition. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, yeah. So, so, um, oh, Sorry, goodness. no, no, no. That's, today. that's it. It's a great tangent. Uh, but no, so gamification helped me get through that process. Um, oh, yeah. And I guess I guess the point that I was just making was for me personally, it has been a positive and a negative, and I just don't really know what to do with the digitization of my life, other than to to do it mindfully. You know, I think, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the real the real thing is to think critically, exactly. Um, to be and mindful. not to worry. It's not like if you are using your smartphone too much, that makes you a, a sinner in the eyes of God, right? I mean, the the the, the thing is, uh, like, oh, maybe I should use my smartphone a little less. Exactly. Uh, it's not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's not a, a mark of some sort of character flaw to to get in wrapped up in this sort of world. Um, it, the question is really bigger than than in, than the individual. The question is what is what are we doing as a culture and what are we doing as um, a society? And and that's not just you know in the United States, but what are we doing globally as a global society uh, to ourselves and to what extent? I think the question is, to what extent do do these technologies help us develop and solve some fundamental problems that have been around for a couple centuries now? Uh, And to what extent do they misdirect us and help to maintain uh, the problem in this current form? Yeah. And in my novel, the the technologies actually – the technology, as dystopian as it was, actually did manage to overcome one of the major problems, probably – from my way of thinking, the major problem in society, which is that we live in a class society based on the maintenance of a propertyless class of of people who work for others and yes. who are exploited. Yeah. But uh, you know, again, it didn't come without a loss. It didn't come. Yeah. That 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 transformation itself, probably. You know, the the the, the revolution never ends. Yeah. You, you, you know, you create a new society, and then that society needs to be critiqued. Or in this case, Bucky needs to be. There needs to be a war against Bucky yeah. from within the machine, maybe, or within the gamification, you know, like some new game where the game is, let's take Bucky down. Um, 
But anyhow. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So so you're a big lobster on the left, I feel like. And do you <laughs> do you feel I'm glad to hear that. I don't feel that way, but go ahead. Well, I I think you are. I think that I mean, you're not as big a lobster as Zizek, of course, but no lobster is as big as Zizek. Uh listeners who have no fucking clue what I'm talking about with lobsters, that's okay. You you're not missing out at all. But no, I I think you are. I think you, you know, your your YouTube channel is great. Your your publishing is great. Your your podcast is fantastic. Um, but, but I, you know, I see you as a, as a really thoughtful person on the left. And I'm wondering if from where you're standing, you see the digitization of the world aiding the left in some way. Like, how, how does the left harness this? How does the left use this to their advantage? So instead of, you know, we raising the concern, just raising the concerns that we've been raising over the past uh, 40 minutes, in what way do you see the left taking advantage of it? Well, I, I, I feel as though that the left, like everyone else in society, is basically faced with the same dilemma that we've been talking about. On the one hand, we're more connected with each other and can than ever and we can draw on a, a almost infinite amount of resources and and, and history at, at the push of a button we can yeah. learn about our own struggle the, like a work the, the history of the working class struggle the history of the struggle for gay liberation the, the struggle for women's emancipation uh the anti-racist struggles and we can learn about it extremely quickly and also connect to other people who are interested in that really easily yeah the trouble is that we're doing it through these systems which have their own logic built into them. Yeah. The technologies are already situated within this society, and so there's an agenda which is counter to our own built into social media, YouTube. I guess that's another kind of social media. Um, it, it, uh, you know, uh, probably word, you know, certainly angry birds, you know, all of it uh, has, has its own agenda, which is not the agenda of a more radical left that's trying to organize and self-organize. Um, so I feel like we need to be careful about how we start to rely on certain forms of communication, particularly. I mean, the obvious thing is that Twitter is pretty toxic for the left. Yes. Um, Absolutely. And it, it, the worst sorts of misrepresentations aren't just common on Twitter, but it's almost by design that they're propagated. Yeah. Because um, in order to sum up anything in, what is it, 280 characters now, mm -hmm. you have to probably do some conflations and reductions that are likely to be inaccurate. Um, but also uh, the, f the way in which it encourages us to play a reputation game, to worry about who's the lobster, that kind of thing, um, yes. is yes. also built in. Um, so, And some of the critiques from the right aren't exactly wrong when it comes to talking about the way progressives behave online. Absolutely. Um, uh, the virtue signaling and all that, I think, actually does happen. If you've been online for in left circles for any length of time, you, you just can't, in good faith, deny that that goes on. Um, that, but, yes, yes. But that's not – I don't think these things are – I mean, the significance of that is only that it breaks us down – breaks communication. It, the, it's only that it's a hindrance for our own projects. It's not that it's some sort of terrible – totalitarian force for you know at, at war with the basic freedoms of a good liberal society or something like that no 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 this all is the liberal society 
You know? Yes. Yeah. This <laughs> the, is, and this is all the fruit of a liberal society. Yeah, absolutely. This I mean, is all no, still we're still functioning within that meta narrative. Right. This is not words. different. This is what how this is how our politics have operated for a long time as identity games and, you know, through moral posturing. It's not different on the right at all. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, you, you that's an interesting point that you bring up. You know, what that immediately brings to mind is I left the Internet for about two years after my nervous breakdown, after my mental break. Mm. And I mean, it was a legit mental break. Uh, I became terrified of ceiling fans. I woke up screaming because it felt like my just my mind was on fire. I mean, it was bad. It was I was totally debilitated and reduced. And wow. Did you get some professional? I got I got lots of professional help and my and my partner was just heroic and helped get me through it. And I, you know, I, so I got lots of professional help and uh, got some good meds, got some good drugs into me and, and got lots of help. So I guess good. Uh, so, but then, although I do think ceiling fans are kind of scary. Ceiling fans are still frightening. Yeah. (laughs) Actually really funny story about that. Also, uh, the most random benign thing started to seem like the, these grotesque, horrific things. And I remember one time when I was just in the midst of this, of this horrific episode, I would try, I tried, you know, reading comedy or going, online and and trying to see some humor to to and to uh you know get my mood back on track and so i was i went to george takai's page and it was just the most monstrous horrific (laughs) i mean for no reason for no reason whatsoever my brain was just misfiring and and so george takai became like this this horrific monster and i couldn't read anything he wrote because it was just all so dark for no reason i mean this is what extreme depression does it's mm-hmm. it's runaway darkness for no with no cause and no effect. Uh, it's just a matter of an interpretation. Exactly. It and yeah. and the interpretation was way unhinged. And so now I have like a hard time watching Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt or or re, or looking at George Takai because the I have these weird associations with him. But all that to say, I came back onto the internet. I came back online, started writing again. I had a really popular blog before I left called Sacred Tension. And now, of course, it's the podcast. I'd left social media. I'd left it all. And I came back and this was in 2015. I, I left in 2000. Well, I left in, in 2014. I came back online early 2016. And it was a different internet in a way. I, I felt like, and maybe maybe I'm naive saying this, but I felt like my progressive circles online had transformed. And I'm not going to say that it was entirely toxic, not at all, but there were ways in which there were things about it that really worried me. There were genuinely things about it that really worried me as well as on the right. I felt and I will always, you know, I I definitely think that the right right now is more of a problem than the left. There is there is no, you know, there are pretty much no acts of homicidal violence on the part of the left. There is on the right. You know, the recent MAGA bomber is an example of that. Well, (laughs) there was a an attempt at violence on the left, but with that, that guy tried to shoot a couple of senators a, a while back. Oh um, yes, there was that. There, there was. Yeah, I mean, it does happen on the left, and but but the the fact is that the ethno nationalist right wing is truly terrifying. Yes. in a way that I haven't experienced before. Me, me too. Uh, and, 
and I'm almost 50. So. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. absolutely, I agree. And so I, when I came back online, I felt like it was a different internet. I felt like it was a much more aggressive, scarier internet than the one that I had experienced in 2012 and 2013. And I think Angela Nagel's assessment in her, in her book, Kill All Normies, where you, oh, I forget how she put it, righteousness or, or being, or, um, being correct is the is the new currency um, yeah. and on 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 the internet and so and so putting someone else down pointing out their flaws pointed piling on you know john ronson says that it's like we're constantly looking for someone's secret inner evil constantly looking for it constantly right. looking for someone and you can find it you can always absolutely find because we're fucked up because human beings are <laughs> right. are awful and so you can always find it and and so we create this social currency in and, and then we put each other down and criticize one another unreasonably to gain that social currency but what then annoys me is how people will will unite themselves to the right in order to critique that does that make sense you know someone yeah. someone yeah, on the no i know totally that's that's right and it's it drives that's me the real danger. nuts it drives me nuts it what, what I, I don't see I mean, I actually do understand. I've seen left wingers, like real pe people who supposedly embrace really pretty radical politics, end up like embracing Trump. Yeah, um, exactly. And I saw it around 2016. It was because crazy. Of, because of political correctness, because well, of how they, much they buck yeah, against political correctness. I think that's a symptom. I don't even think that, I think political correct, being against political correctness is the, the starting point But for a lot of people. But I feel as though there's something else going on. Like, I actually think that the reason that they were on the radical left and the reason they end up being like right wing reactionaries is fundamentally the same, that there's a profound uh, alienation in the real radical left and the reactionary right uh, from society, from this, from modern society as it is, a real rejection of it. Yeah. And, uh, so they find that for whatever reason, the being a radical part of the radical left isn't working anymore and it basically it was like almost that when called upon to defend the best of liberal modernity some of these people can't do it and won't do it yeah and they'll go who to whoever is still standing as the uh, opposition to it and yeah. they'll throw everything in the same basket and so that's the, the tendency you have to Mm. real push against on the left it's like no 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 we're not we're on the left not because we hate equality and we because we hate having due process or we hate you know anti-discrimination laws we don't hate any of these things right that's the, the reason we're on the left is because we think anti-discrimination laws don't go far enough in developing a free and just society it's not because we don't like the Things that do exist that kind of work in the society, but anyway, I I've uh, I've gone through the mill on this a few times. One thing that's interesting now that we're talking about this in this context is how none of that really ended up in the book. Like none of the mm -hmm. question virtue signaling or political correctness or how we talk to each other through social media ends up in the book at all. And I think the reason why is because um, Matthew, who's posting on Facebook throughout the whole thing, isn't talking to anyone except yeah. Sally. Yeah, yeah, and, and I. I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was brilliant, by the way. That was a really, really cool format. Did you, you like that? I did. Um, was it easy to track when, when he was talking through direct messenger and when he was talking in through Facebook posts and all that? Mm -hmm. I thought so. But yeah. 
But I think part of the reason why is because I grew up doing that. Like, right. like I have this backlog of my entire life, you know, in high school and college on social media, almost like a new form of journaling I, in conversation and Facebook notes and all that kind of stuff. And earlier than that, MySpace. And so it made sense to me because I did it basically my entire life. And I'm still right. doing it just in a more professional capacity. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing with Matthew in that is that he is using social media kind of in its uh, pr most primal form. Mm -hmm. It's a way to talk to the kind of anonymous other yeah, uh, to, to be seen by society in its totality rather than to engage any particular person online. And that's the other thing I think we should all kind of keep in mind when we're engaging on Twitter or Facebook or whatever is that a lot of the time almost – I would say at least the majority of the time, people aren't responding to you as you at all, not even yes. as um, an individual, but as a representative of some other that they imagine. So, and they and they're taking cues off to off of what you say as to how to imagine your place in this kind of big society and this big picture that they've got. So, yeah, you say one thing, like you make a joke. Today, this morning, I made a joke uh, that we needed to make uh, some meme stash Facebook group apolitical again. Make it, make it something uh, something again was all it took, and people started treating me as if I was uh, on the far right in the group. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've I've had that experience too. And and what I will never do is then say, "Welp, the the right is correct, the left is full of bullshit." <laughs> Right. I, no. And and you know, we could make so much money doing that. Like if No, I don't know. Maybe I mean maybe, maybe like that that I mean, but that's how like people like Dave Rubin, you know, that's the story that they spin. Oh, yeah. That's the story that they spin is, you know, because the left was mean to them on the internet, then we just abandoned the left as a whole. And that to me is such bullshit. And that's something that I see online quite a bit is, yeah, is just because people are mean to me, just because, you know, th that to me demonstrates a lack of intellectual integrity to conflate the way people treat me with the ideas themselves. You know right. what I mean? And, and yeah, yeah. you know, the, whether something is true or not is not predicated on how and people who like believe those things. I want to point out, they didn't even treat me that badly. Right? Sure. I mean, it's just, just, it was just like, uh, they, you could tell that they didn't, they were not, I could tell that they were not really talking to me at all. They were talking to some imagined person. And, and that imagined person wasn't any particular person. It was like they were talking to all of the right at once if they could, you know, if they could manage it. That's sort of the, the goal. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, on the, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, I guess I'm, so. Yeah, I guess. I want to. I want to. I, I want to end on the note of everyone should go and buy my book. <laughs> absolutely. No, that's an even better note to end on. I mean, I'm. I'm. I have a feeling that we could talk about this stuff for ages and really bore my yeah. listeners forever. Um, no, no. But but I think it's fascinating. I think what you're doing is awesome, and I love pretty much all the stuff that you create. Uh, it's really really good. And so everyone, go buy Bash Bash Revolution. It is very good. Buy it on Amazon or booksellers or wherever. Yeah. And read his book. It's a lot of fun. Uh, where and it's available as an audio book too through Audible. So. Oh, nice. Do you do you narrate it? No, I don't. They, okay. They, a, a, a pretty good reader, uh, better than I am. Uh, awesome. Read the book. It does a great Trump. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, where can people find you if they want to get in touch oh, with you or or follow your work? Douglas Lane. Dot com. That's L-A-I-N is one way to reach me. You can go to um, 
our YouTube channel, which is just Zero Books. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, as Zero Books, but there's a, an actual zero for the O uh, in Zero Books, and there's a underscore or something, I think, as well. I'll have to check that out. But the main thing is just go through, go to DouglasLane.com, and you'll find links to everything else, and you can listen to the podcast we do. And uh, yeah, and uh, it's on IndieBound and Amazon, and uh, and you're probably in your local library if you want to check out Batch Batch Revolution. Fantastic. All right. Well, that is it for this week's show. The music is by The Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you listen to music. Special thanks goes to my team, Carson Green. She does all the posting, all the social media stuff for me. So if you like what I'm posting, that's actually all her. So you can thank her for that. So I have time to uh, focus. You can also find me on all the social media bullshit, Instagram at Stephen Bradford Long, Twitter at Stephen B. Long, so on and so forth. Also, special thanks to Justin Dozier Bryant, who does all of the graphics for the show. If you enjoy my show and you want to support it, you can do that by rating this show five stars on iTunes. That really helps. A lot of guests, when I ask them to come on, they don't even listen to the show. They just look at how many stars I have. And so it's a little thing you can do, and it really helps the show. Also, if you want to give in a more substantial way, please consider going to my Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for just $5 a month or even $1 a month, you can get an additional podcast, the House of Heretics podcast, where Justin and I have unedited conversations about fisting and gay sex and Jesus Christ. Uh, and are, it's really not appropriate for public consumption, but that's what you're paying the money for. All right. <laughs> Let's see. There what you else. go. There you go. And to close out this show, I will end on a song from the Rock Candy recording backlog. And as usual, this is a production of Rock Candy Media. And I will see you next week. My attention span is paper thin. Can't stop from cyberspacing out again. Is this what I'm paying for staying relevant this season? Mm, my bank account looks more like an abyss. Friends have been asking, when am I having kids? I guess stressing out, it's how I'm gonna spend this
Just holding out. <laughs>